Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Okay, I'd like to welcome everyone out to a, another Tuesday evening uh, study on the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, and it is Tuesday, April 26th, 2016. Let's get opened, let's get started with a word of prayer. We'll open up with some liturgy after that, and then we'll get started with the study tonight, okay? Let's pray. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we're excited about being right in the middle of your Passover season. Lord, we know that you have ordained these times on your calendar. Indeed, you have enjoined us as your people to meet you on these special days. That's why you gave them to us. That's why you instituted them um, in the Torah and you established them among your people so that you could show up and meet us on these special days. Indeed, we know with... Um, with eyes open by faith, that uh, the festivals are dress rehearsals of Messianic redemption. And so they are designed to showcase and highlight the, uh, the life and the death and the resurrection and the intercession um, of the Messiah, Yeshua. And so for that reason, Lord, we will, we will look forward to to meeting you on your special days year after year as they show up on the calendar. Thank you, Lord, for Yeshua, the Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of, of the world. Thank you, Father, that he was and is the 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 unleavened bread, the one who was without sin. And we thank you, Lord, that he has become our Omer Rishit, our first sheep, the one who was presented before you. And we know because of that, Lord, that we can stand um, finished and perfected in the work that he's doing in us. Uh, nevertheless, Lord, continue to draw us closer to you, even now as we're counting the Omer, as we work our way towards um, Shavuot, towards the uh, pouring of the, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the remembrance of the giving of Torah at Sinai. Lord, we know that these days are connected. Pesach to Shavuot, for indeed without Shavuot there would be no Pesach, and without Pesach there is no Shavuot. You brought us out in order to bring us in, and you gave us your words in order that we might be filled with your spirit. And so we are being set free by Messiah in Pesach, and we are being filled with Messiah at Shavuot. And so we thank you, Lord, that these are the uh, the truths that we are encountering as we walk into the festivals. Be with us tonight as we study the book of Galatians. I hope uh, I pray that you will um, enlarge our capacity to um, 
understand and to retain the things that we learn. Be with each and every student uh, that has joined us tonight. I pray that you'll um, bless them where they're at, help them to be a blessing to others as they seek to um, press into the text. I pray that you'll give me understanding of the text as well. Uh, we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise in all of these things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, uh, for those of you who are joining me, uh, this is week number... Oh, let me take a look. I believe we're on week number 25 by now in our Galatians study. Um, nope, we're on week number 24. And we have been just working our way through the book of Galatians week by week, just a few paragraphs at a time. We're working through a commentary that I wrote that is available online at my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Right on the homepage, there's a link near the top that says Galatians Commentary. Click on that. And you can um, follow along that way. Or if you can't join us live every Tuesday evening, um, which, of course, uh, enrollment is free. But if you can't join us every Tuesday evening live on the Internet, then um, look, uh, look around my website at that Galatians commentary link. And I upload the audio commentaries uh, after I edit them each week, usually a day or two after the fact. So you're certainly welcome to follow along that way. Um, you can subscribe to this podcast um, by finding me in the iTunes store. Just Google, I'm sorry, just search my name uh, in the iTunes store, either Ariel Hanavi, or I think if you search Galatians, then you'll end up seeing, uh, finding my uh, podcast there as well. I'd love to have you subscribe, and then you can follow the commentary that way as well. Um, for our liturgy, I'm going to read a passage out of the book of Exodus, since we're right in the middle of the Passover week, right in the middle of Passover season for 2016. And um, normally I would be read liturgy from maybe Deuteronomy or wherever else I've been selecting them, but, but for this night, this, uh, this meeting we're going to read out of um, Exodus, since this is a special, um, special time of meeting, so... For those of you who are in the live class right now, you'll see on your screen that I've got a, um, a page pulled up out of my... This is actually my updated um, Passover commentary for this year. It was updated uh, just last week or so. And in fact, I put it together uh, just a few weeks ago. So um, what I'm going to do is pull some liturgy out of this commentary, and that will be our liturgy for the evening. And then I will read some Greek and English out of the New Testament as well. So... If you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along that way, you're welcome to. Uh, Exodus 13, verse 1. This time the English will be the New American Standard, and the Hebrew is just the, 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 the familiar Hebrew that most of you are used to reading, the, the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgart Stintia, or the Leningrad Codex. So, Exodus 13, verse 1. Uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Vaideber Adonai el Moshe lemor. Verse 2, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. Kadesh li chol b'chor peter kol lechem bivne Yisrael ba'adam u'v'behem alihu. Verse 3, 
Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. Um, Moshe el ha'am, et hayom hazeh, asher yitzatem mi mitzraim mi beit avadim, ki b'chozek yad chutzi Adonai etchem mizev lo yeachel chametz. Verse 4, and on this day, in the month of Abib, you are to go forth. Hayom atem yotzim b'chodesh ha'aviv. Verse 5, and it shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. V'haya ki yeve'acha Adonai el erz ha'kina'ani v'ha'chiti v'ha'emuri v'ha'chivi v'ha'yivusi asher nishba la'avotecha latet lach erz zavach halav udvash v'avadta et ha'avodah hazot b'chodesh hazeh. Verse 6. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast. To the Lord, Shivat Yamim to Achal Matzot Uvyom Hashvii Chagla Adonai. Verse seven: Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. Matzot Yechal Et Shivat Yamim Velo Yerei Lacha Chametz Velo Yerei Lachas Or Bechol Gvulecha. Verse 8, And you shall tell your son that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Verse 9, And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Verse 10. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Ha huka hazot le moad le moada yima miyamim yamima. And verse 11. Now, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, the hayaki the ach adonai el erz hakina anika asher nishba lacha velavotecha. Verse 12, You shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. The Havadta kol peter lechem l'adonai v'chol peter shigir behima asher yiye lecha hazkarim l'adonai. Verse 13, But every offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. 
וכל פטר חמור תפדה בשה ואם לא תפדה וערבת וכל בחור אדם בהימה I'm sorry, בווינחה תפדה I'm sorry, let's try that one again Verse 13 in Hebrew is וכל פטר חמור תפדה בשה ואם לא תפדה וערבת וכל בחור אדם בבנך תפדה That's the word I'm stumbling on among your sons בבנך And verse 14 And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying What is this? And you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. That's the what's this, mazot. Amarta, a live. Verse 15. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn, Firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons, I redeem. And the final verse, verse 16. So it shall be, so it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Amen. And that's our liturgy for the, uh, out of the uh, Tanakh, out of the Torah, out of the Old Testament. Let's jump now into the verse that we're actually going to be um, examining in our uh, study tonight. This is Galatians 2.16, just this verse. Um, I don't have the ESV pulled up in front of you. Uh, so this time, I guess I'll just read the wooden translation. For those of you who are in the class with me tonight, um, you'll see on your screen right now, I've got uh, basically an interlinear reading going on. In blue, along the very top, <clears throat> there's the transliterated Greek. And then just below that, there in black, is the Greek uh, script itself. And then in the red, just below that, is a wooden word-for-word translation from the Greek. And then below that, we have the uh, parts of speech and things like that. So um, this is just verse 16, and I've chosen this because we're going to be starting a new section in our study to the book of Galatians. And basically, we're going to examine this verse for the next section. Um, the English says, and this is a kind of a wooden word, word for word translation. This isn't any true verse version. Uh, the wooden English says, knowing that nevertheless that not justified, not is justified a man by works of law, if not through faith of Christ Jesus, even we in Christ Jesus believed that we might be justified by faith of Christ and not by works of law, because by works of law, not will be justified any flesh. And the Greek reads, Edotis de hati u de kaiutai anthropos ex ergonamu in me diepistios Christu Jesu kai hemes eis Christon Jesun epistusimen hina de kaiothomen ek pistios Christu 
kaiuk ex ergonamu hati ex ergonamu u de kaiotesetai pasa sarx. Okay. And that's our liturgy for the uh, New Testament. Let's actually jump into the study. We have um, we have finally come to a new section. If you'll recall, the commentary that I wrote to the book of Galatians is actually divided into ten topical sections, one through ten, and then the excursus section, which deals with the um, difficult passages that I have selected to look at. So, if you recall, this is not really a verse-by-verse uh, exposition of the book of Galatians. I don't study every verse. I don't um, comment on every single verse in the book of Galatians. Instead, this is more of a focused study uh, designed to really examine the historical and social and religious context of the book of Galatians, particularly as it has impacted not only the readers of Paul's day, but how it um, impacts the ongoing um, Christian and Jewish communities of the 21st century, so down through the history line. And for that reason, instead of picking out every verse, I only highlight the verses that I have found in my experience to be points of contention, points of sharp difference between, say, the traditional Christian group of interpreters and the, and perhaps maybe the um, traditional messianic group of interpreters. And so for the sake of this commentary, it's helpful to understand that there are two target audiences that I've had in view from the beginning to the end of my commentary. And essentially, these are the two target audiences. I've got target audience over on my left side that is basically the historic Christian church, the prevailing um, Christian interpreters that take a position on the book of Galatians, that Paul essentially is providing a discontinuous break from Judaism, meaning he is essentially writing to a group of Christians and um, explaining to them that, in a word, the Torah is been, has been set aside in Messiah. It has been relegated to a, a different dispensation. Uh, basically, it has been um, uh, exchanged in favor of the law of Christ, or walking by the Spirit, and therefore it has been fulfilled in Christ, and and therefore the the your Christian need not concern himself with the likes of say Seventh Day Sabbath and um, festivals and keeping kosher and circumcision and the like. In a word, um, the new people of God has replaced the older people of God. Th- these are kind of generalities, but essentially they describe the prevailing. Uh, Christian view interpretations and applications of the book of Galatians. So, and so they are one of my target audiences. They are on my left here. On my right, I've got what I call the emerging Torah communities. Some people refer to these groups as the messianic communities. These are a group of peoples that have shown up on the scene in the last, say, 50 years. Um, although in reality, they have just reemerged because in my understanding, they actually showed up. They've actually been present through God's They've, they've actually been present in God's people from, from as, early, from as far back as Abraham. But, um, uh, visibly speaking, uh, we can identify these, this group of people as those Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. They are believers, but they espouse to a, an Hebraic lifestyle. They embrace the Torah of Moses as a, a blueprint for living. I include myself in this group as well. This doesn't mean that I'm not a Christian. I actually am a. I'm actually a member of both groups, if one could imagine that. Um, but 
but the, the sharp difference between the two groups, the one on my left and the one on my right, is that the one on my right, the Torah communities, essentially believe that Paul does not preach a discontinuous message, but rather teaches a continuous message, meaning the law of Moses has not been set aside by Messiah. It has, fact, in fact, been brought to a fullness that is only possible through the spirit of Messiah. It has been um, set on a more sure foundation because of the sacrifice of Messiah. It has been um, established and implemented into the communities of Messiah, and as such, it forms the blueprint for everyday living. In a word, the uh, Hebraic groups on my right, the Messianic communities, uh, they still embrace the Seventh-day Sabbath. They still embrace the dietary laws of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. They still embrace the festivals of Leviticus chapter 23. And of course, they still embrace circumcision for their children. So this puts them at odds with the group on my left, it, in, at least in terms of practical application of the text. Um, so this, these are the two groups that I imagine when I wrote my commentary to the book of Galatians. I'm, I'm speaking to both of these groups. Now, because I take the position that I believe that Torah is still relevant, this means that the prevailing Christian hermeneutic that teaches that Paul taught the abrogation of Torah, I find no warrant for that in the scripture. And I take my cue, I take my license, not only from the apostolic scriptures, not only from the New Testament writings, but I actually root my hermeneutic in the Tanakh itself, in the Old Testament writings. So I believe that Paul would have done the same. I believe that Paul would have started his theology from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament, what Christians call the Old Testament, and worked his way towards the fullness of that revelation in the apostolic scriptures, in fact, in the very letters that he was writing during the time. We know that Galatians is one of his earliest writings. So, with that as our kind of background, um, we're ready to dive into a new section called um, Topic 4, Works of Law, Part 2, Examining Galatians 2.16. And um, for those of you who have not been following along with my commentary, um, I, I'm going to have to recommend that you go back and read or listen to the podcasts, but at least go back and familiar yourself with the context of where I'm going in this commentary and why I'm highlighting circumcision and, work, and the phrase works of law as it shows up in Paul. For instance, why did I even read Galatians 2.16 in the Greek? Why did I highlight that the phrase works of law, or sometimes it shows up as works of the law with the article added there. Uh, but literally, in the, from the Greek, it would be works of law. There's, there's no article there. It's, it's, it's not articular. But um, go back and, and um, find out why I'm highlighting this. I'll, I'll rehash a little bit of it in my commentary. But And by the way, um, for those of you who are in the class, if you have questions or comments, um, you're welcome to jot them down. You, you'll notice there's a little chat feature built into this webinar. You can type questions and comments down below. I won't mention your names for, an, for, uh, for anonymity's sake. Um, for those who will be listening to this commentary around the world after the fact. But I'll see if I can address your questions as we're going along, if, the, if, if they're within the topic of what we're talking about. Uh, one final thing is that we're the, the, um, we'll meet for about an hour. So we've got... Um, we started a little late, so I'll go for probably another 45 minutes or so. And then... Um, uh, for those of you who are in the live class, there is a, a 15 minute Q&A session where uh, we can just talk off topic if you like. We can 
um, clarify things that I've said. We can question things that I've said um, uh, and just kind of chat with the teacher. You won't be able to talk. You'll have to type your questions in. But um, if you have anything that you are uh, uh, that you have questions about, um, feel free to type it right when I'm talking, and then I'll perhaps maybe stop because I can see the chat as we're, as I'm teaching. Okay. Okay. Um, part four, works of law, part two. Why am I singling out works of law? As I mentioned earlier in my commentaries, I'll give you at least this amount of background. I've, I believe that um, in order to properly and to better appreciate the social religious context of Paul's letter, then it's necessary for we as um, modern Bible students to do a little background digging. We have to understand the what occasioned Paul to write the words that he wrote. Were the Galatian Christians in his letter entertaining notions of returning to Judaism? Were they entertaining notions of just trying to uh, use the law in order to become saved? Most of you are, who have followed my commentaries for any length of time know that the traditional Christian perspective that teaches that, that the Judaisms of Paul's day were holding and wielding and using Torah as a means of salvation rather wooden way, kind of a, a simplistic, legalistic ladder to heaven where the person supposedly did the Torah and God supposedly rewarded them with salvation. Most of you know that I don't hold to that hermeneutic. I don't hold to that interpretation. That doesn't mean that I disagree with the theology, meaning if I were to attend an average church and a pastor were to teach that from Galatians, if a pastor were to teach a sermon to his people that that if you try to keep the law to be saved, it'll fail and that you can only be saved by faith in Christ. And if, and meaning if he were to teach a sermon using, say, Galatians 2.16, that it's not by works of law, meaning from his perspective, it's not by keeping the law that one is saved, but by only by faith in Christ that one is saved. If I were to sit in that church service, then I would have to agree wholeheartedly with the theology that the pastor is presenting to his people, namely... No one can keep the Torah for, for salvific purposes. I agree with that theology. I agree with that general, um, uh, how do we say, general uh, um, uh, message that's that would be being presented by the pastor. However, historically, I do not believe that that is the message that Paul was teaching. I don't think Paul, I don't find this to be the case when I study the context of um, the... Uh, uh, what the Jewish people believed in Paul's day. In a word, I don't believe the Jewish people of Paul's day were misusing Torah for that purpose. There's some other ingredient that I find missing quite frequently in today's Christian commentaries to the book of Galatians. And that ingredient is what I what uh, James D.G. Dunn calls the social view of the law, the social use of the law. And what, what do I mean by that? What we mean is that um, in Paul's day, by Paul's day, the Jewish people had basically um, micromanaged the law. They had basically, as I call it, hijacked God and his law so that they had essentially excluded anyone else from keeping it, anyone else from um, becoming obedient to its commandments anyone else other than Israel. And in that limited view of Torah obedience, the Torah became a, a, uh, an, exclusive, an exclusively Jewish possession. And that's what I mean by the social function of the law. So in Paul's day, the Jewish people didn't, didn't interpret their law-keeping as a legalistic 
ladder to heaven. They didn't envision that if they kept the law X, Y, Z, one, two, three, perfunctorily, etc. They didn't believe that their law keeping saved them. Uh, to be sure, they didn't even use the language of saved all the time. They often use the language of um, righteous, became a righteous person or justified. So they would they would say the law justifies a person. The law causes a person to be counted as righteous. And that's kind of code word for um, declared right in God's eyes. Of course, from a 21st century perspective, we interpret that as uh, forensic righteousness, meaning salvific righteousness. But the, the people of Paul's day weren't really using the Torah in that fashion is the point I'm trying to make. They weren't really um, hoping that God would accept their their law-keeping as a, um, a means to become saved. Instead, they actually held to a nationalistic salvation, kind of a group salvation, where um, uh, in a kind of a passive way, they were born into with their covenant status as Jews, and therefore they were born into covenant status that equaled salvation. They were, in a, in a word, in a word, we could say they were born with salvation. They were born saved because they were born into a family group that was um, elected by God, and so that's that's essentially the worldview that Paul lived in. Now, Paul didn't. Paul's not going to. Um, Paul's not going to agree with that theology at this point in time. He used to agree with it. He used to toe that party line. He used to to um, uh, support that theology. But when he met the risen Yeshua, <clears throat> then his eyes were opened by the Spirit of God, and he came to and he came to realize that God doesn't have God doesn't play favorites. God isn't saving the Jewish people only. God is actually out to save the Gentiles as well. And it's not Plan B. The Gentiles are not Plan B. The Gentiles are actually Plan A, right along with the Jewish people. Salvation is for all who would name the name of Yeshua as their personal Messiah. And therefore, because the, as one pastor would say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross in Paul's theology, then it's because of that that Paul is going to be at odds with his um, contemporaries. He's going to find some sharp disagreements between the theology of the Judaisms of his day and his own Messianic theology that was formed by his um, encounter with Yeshua and his study of the text. So that's why I'm picking on works of the law. I believe that works of the law is a is a, a known technical phrase, a socio-religious phrase that was used by Paul's day to describe the theology that I'm trying to present to you in my commentary. So let's pick up the commentary reading and see if I can um, begin to flesh this out. What I'm going to do in this section four, is, and I hope we don't end up spending, how long did we spend on section three? Uh, 13 weeks or something like that. I can't remember, 11 or 13 weeks. A good amount of time developing the foundation to this phrase, works of the law, and the background behind circumcision and proselyte conversion in Paul's day. Uh, I don't think we'll spend that much time on section four. I hope we don't. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point. But um, let's go ahead and read, and um, hopefully this will be self-explanatory. For those of you who are in the class, or those of you who are following along after the fact, and you've got the written commentary in front of you, um, I'm on the top of page 32. Now that we have briefly examined circumcision in section one and two, and the background to proselyte conversion slash works of the law in section three, let us begin to finalize our examination of works of the law by singling out its first use in Galatians at Galatians 2.16. 
We will revisit this verse when we get to it in the excursious portion of my commentary below. Its treatment in this section is merely intended to be an appetizer. Indeed, most commentators on Paul identify this verse as a part of one of the central theological threads of the letter to the Galatians. So, let's put my thesis to the test and see if my understanding of works of the law fits with the context of Galatians 2.16. Let us start this section by reminding ourselves of Dunn's working definition of Paul's term, works of the law. And this is James D.G. Dunn. Uh, for those of you who are interested in, uh, as I uh, interject, those of you who are interested in studying what I consider to be one of the premier um, new perspectivist uh, views on Paul, meaning new meaning it's new when compared to, say, the Reformation view on Paul, Lutheran's view on Paul, Calvin's view on Paul. The traditional prevailing Christian view on Paul is what I call the kind of the established view of Paul, the popular view of Paul today in Christian circles. But as of, say, at least maybe the early 70s, probably with Christopher Stendhal, maybe in the 60s, and then moving into E.P. Sanders' uh, work in in the late 70s, uh, uh, Paul, what is it, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, and then moving into um, new perspective on Paul with uh, the works by Dunn and the works by uh, N.T. Wright, Bishop Wright. We, we started uh, introducing what has been labeled a new perspective on Paul. In all fairness, it's not really a new perspective so much as it's a renewed perspective. Because um, those who study the new perspective are actually quickly going to find that it's actually an attempt to return to the original context, the original historical context of Paul's letters, which means it's really a renewed perspective. That would make the, um, chron chronologically, that would really make Luther's view and Calvin's view on Paul, those are really the new perspectives, aren't they? Because they're the ones that come, that came after Paul's own perspective. And thus, they are the ones that are slightly different. So, um, basically, James D.G. Dunn is uh, what many would identify as a new perspective teacher. He's a Christian. Uh, he's not Jewish, to my knowledge. But the perspective that he presents or uh, uh, allows us to study from is a decidedly new perspective. And for that reason, he's going to um, try to recreate Paul in, a, in Paul's own historical context. And I think he does a very good job. He tend uh, uh, of my top three favorite uh, Bible teachers when it comes to Paul. Uh, Dunn is in the top three, along with Tim Hague. So um, uh, let's quote from Dunn. Uh, I, for those of you who uh, want to get um, kind of a what in my, in, in my opinion amounts to a better perspective on Paul than say what has been presented by the Reformation view of Paul. Um, I think Dunn's going to do a better job, so I recommend Dunn. James D.G. Dunn. Just buy anything from Dane, James D.G. Dunn. He has a commentary in Galatians, so that might be a good place to start. Let's quote here from one of his commentaries. Quote, Works of law are nowhere understood here, speaking of Galatians here, either by his Jewish interlocutors or by Paul himself as works which earn God's favor, as merit-amassing observances. They are rather seen as badges. They are simply what membership of the covenant people involves, what mark out the Jews as God's people, given by God for precisely that reason. They serve to demonstrate covenant status. They are the proper response to God's covenant grace, the minimal commitment 
for members of God's people. In other words, we're still quoting Dunn here, Paul has in view precisely what Sanders, referring to E.P. Sanders there, precisely what Sanders calls covenantal gnomism. And by the way, we've got a whole section on covenantal gnomism coming up next, so that'll be section five. Um, so what um, Paul has in view is what Sanders calls covenantal gnomism. And what he, Paul, denies is that God's justification depends on covenantal gnomism, that God's grace extends only to those who wear the badge of the covenant. This is a historical conclusion of some importance, since it begins to clarify with more precision what were the continuities and discontinuities between Paul, his fellow Jewish Christians, and his own Pharisaic past, so far as justification and grace, covenant and law, are concerned. You all understand where, where um, Dunn is going with this? Dunn is essentially challenging the prevailing Christian idea that Paul and Paul's contemporaries, that is to say the Judaisms of Paul's day, were believing that the law was something that could be wielded by anyone seeking salvation in God's courtroom. The standard uh, Christian view that that is what Paul is combating does not seem to square with uh, or line up with uh, the, say, the extra-biblical sources that one can read. For instance, the the, uh, the rabbinic sources, the Mishnah, the Talmuds, the Midrashim, the, the response literature, things like that. Even though those came after Paul, uh, in other words, they're, they're later, uh, and even though they're extra-biblical, and even though they're non-inspired, nevertheless, they provide us with an important cultural and religious background into the minds of the Pharisaic Judaisms that survived from the destruction of the temple in the first century. Wouldn't you agree? So for that reason, they become helpful and valuable resources when seeking to um, flesh out more of the uh, cultural religious background than the, say, New Testament provides for us. Let's keep reading Done. More important for Reformation exegesis is the corollary that works of the law, there's our Greek phrase ergonamu again, works of the law, do not mean good works in general, good works in the sense disparaged by the heirs of Luther, works in the sense of self-achievement, man's self-powered striving to undergird his own existence in forgetfulness of his creaturely existence, uh, to quote a famous definition from Boltman. The phrase works of the law in Galatians 2.16 is, in fact, a fairly restricted one. It refers precisely to those same identity markers described above, covenant works, those regulations prescribed by the law which any good Jew would simply take for granted to describe what a good Jew did. To be a Jew was to be a member of the covenant, was to observe circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath. In short, once again, Paul seems much less a man of 16th century Europe and more, much more firmly in touch with the reality of first century Judaism than many have thought, end quote. And there's a footnote to uh, number 19 in my commentary that I referenced this from the new perspective on Paul, um, uh, section number two. So essentially what Dunn is trying to do for us is to uh, remind us that in order to uh, to contextually appreciate Paul, one needs to uh, remind 
oneself of the fact that the law in Paul's day carried a social function. It, it functioned basically to um, to define and maintain Jewish identity. Um, I have a book in my hands right now called Jesus, Paul, and the Law by James D.G. Dunn. And there's a little quote in here that I don't have in my commentary, but I want to read it now. Basically, in reference to, to uh, Galatians 2.16 again, uh, Dunn says, quote, The immediate context of the Antioch dispute makes clear that works of the law are equivalent to living like a Jew. I didn't read Galatians 2.15, but basically, or the context leading into that, but basically that's what Paul is arriving at. Um, perhaps maybe I could pull it up here. I don't think I can pull it up for the students in the class because I don't have it added into the uh, um, into my library here. But if you've got your Bible and you say open up to Galatians two and start with say verse eleven and work your way towards verse sixteen, which I read in my liturgy, uh, reading out of the ESV, we have but when Cephas, speaking of Peter, this is Paul writing, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse twelve. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, and this is Paul's biting uh, rebuke to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then verse 15, which is cryptic, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And then we move into verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, etc. So Dunn is trying to suggest that in this context, the immediate context of the uh, Antioch dispute between Paul and Peter here, uh, works of the law are requirements to living like a Jew. Remember Paul said, if you live like a Jew and not like a Gentile. Give me a moment. Let me just look at something in the Greek to see if there's something that was uh, that I wanted to highlight. Uh, verse 14. Alhati edon hati uk prostein althean tu euangelion apunto eudaios. Okay. Um, uh Live like a Jew, Eudiakos uh, Zeis, the lifestyle of a Jew. Postaethne Anankadze Eudaitsein. How can you force the Gentiles? How can you Anankadzeis Eudaitsein live? How can you force the Gentiles to take on the lifestyle of the Jews, essentially? If I would were to woodenly translate the Greek myself. Um, the immediate context of this incident shows or seems to support that works of the law is equivalent to live like a Jew in verse 14. So verse 16, where we have Aragon Namu, works of the law, seems to be pointing back to live like a Jew in verse 14, is what Dunn is saying. And the works of the law um, appear to be those activities which express Jewish identity. Doing what the law demands is a sign of adopting the Jewish way of life. Essentially, the works of the law that is maintaining a Jewish lifestyle. So I like this phrase that um, Dunn introduces, activities which express Jewish identity. Essentially, that's what works of the law uh, brings to us 
by way of importance. And I feel that as a 21st century Bible student, I think it's very important for us to to consider this fact that working from the, the context of Paul's writing here, Paul is not really upset with Peter trying to go back under the law, per se, as the traditional Christian commentators suggest. What I think Paul is upset most with is Peter's hypocrisy over the equality of Jew and Gentile within the program of God is demonstrated by the gospel of Messiah. And so when Peter separates himself from the Gentiles, he separates himself because of their ethnic status. He separates himself because they're Gentiles, because they're not Jews. And this sends the wrong message to the Gentiles. What does it say to Gentiles? It says to them that you're second-class citizens in God's family. It says to the Gentiles that you're not quite on par, you're not quite equal to we Jews. So you see, there's this social and religious class caste system going on in Paul's day that upsets Paul quite heatedly. And if you're a 21st century Christian Jew, a Christian Gentile, Gentile Christian listening to this tonight, then you should be upset too. You would be upset if you realize that the Jewish, the Jewish um, social groups of Paul's day, the, Jew, the religious groups of Paul's day, were essentially treating the Gentiles as second-class citizens and restricting their involvement in the communities of God, viz. the, um, the, the community of Israel, restricting their involvement and in, and, in fact, inclusion, restricting them on the basis of their ethnicity. So basically, in Paul's day, Gentiles couldn't be counted as, as viable covenant members in Israel unless they took upon legal Jewish status, unless they converted to Judaism, unless they went through the ceremony of the proselyte and were pronounced as a legally standing Jew. Recall in section 3 that we pulled this lengthy quote from the Mishnah where uh, the Gentile proselyte enters into the mikvah, into the baptismal pool, as it were, enters into the mikvah for the purpose of changing his ethnicity. And according to the proto-rabbis of Paul's day, the religious leaders who later became the rabbis, uh, according to the proto-rabbis, the Gentile initiate who entered into the mikvah tank entered in as a Gentile, but after his ablution, after he came up out of the mikvah waters, he was pronounced as a Jew. He was pronounced as a legally standing member of the Jewish community. And then, and only then, was the Torah proper given to him and expected as a covenant member of him. You guys following along what I'm saying? This is a social perspective that I believe that is better to understand the book of Galatians within. Because within that context, we don't find Paul disparaging, uh, uh, we don't fall, dis- we don't find Paul, uh, disparaging, uh, keeping Torah for anyone, Jew or Gentile alike. Instead of Paul teaching that the Torah is done away with, what Paul is combating is this limited perspective of both God, his covenants, his spirit, and of course his law. So that's that I believe is the context that we're gonna get the most mileage out of. And that's where my commentary is going in this in that direction. Let's keep reading. I think done is is there's a typo there. It just says done into on in onto something. It should say is. I think done is onto something quite relevant in regards to our study in Galatians with his explanation about works of law. But we also need to be reminded that many religious Jews of Paul's day often already viewed their existing covenant status as secured 
based on Jewish identity, which is right here, circumcision. Meaning, as I interject, the term circumcision in Paul's day was being used as a metonym for Jewish identity. We already know this um, because we can read about it in the, in, the, in the writings of the New Testament. We can read about it right here in Galatians. If you open uh, Galatians chapter uh, 2, you'll recall that Paul describes Peter's ministry to the circumcised and his own ministry to the uncircumcised. And Paul uses metonyms there. Um, uh, kind of uh, evasive synonyms or uh, what we call um, um, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting the other term that, that we might be we call this. Um, but uh, uh, basically instead of saying Jewish people, Paul says circumcised. And instead of saying the Gentiles Paul, or the Greeks, Paul says the uncircumcised. Things like that. And, and you know, most Bible students are aware of that interchange between the term Jew and the term circumcised. But what what many students may not be aware of is that by Paul's day, circumcision itself had become the definition by which Jewish ethnicity was hinging. And I'm going to get to that in a moment, so let's keep reading my commentary. So we have um, <clears throat> the Jewish people of Paul's day, the religious Jews, uh, believing that their covenant status was secured based on Jewish identity. Now we're at the top of page 33. And it was, this was rooted as it was in the corresponding foundation of the, quote, merit of the fathers. In other words, the basis, it was based on Hashem's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've got a little footnote, number 20, which uh, corresponds to, uh, if you'll recall, I think it's in, in Luke 3, around verse 8 or something like that. Uh, recall that John's rebuke of some of the religious leaders who might suppose that they have, quote, Abraham is their father, end quote, perhaps in hopes that the righteousness of Abraham would transfer to them somehow. Remember, John's rebuking them, these religious leaders who had showed up at his baptism, you brood of vipers who warned you about the wrath to come, uh, keep, uh, you know, repent and, and do the good works that are commensurate with, with repentance. And um, don't suppose that you have Father Abraham that you can that you can rest on and rely on. What what is John trying to insinuate here? That what John's trying to imply is that the religious people, many of the religious leaders in Paul's day, were teaching that because you were offspring of Abraham, you were counted among the righteous. There was this kind of um, uh, uh, what do we what did I say before? This kind of this passive. Uh, corporate righteousness that God extended to the Jewish people based on his choosing of the avot, his choosing of the fathers. And therefore, um, the Jewish people could kind of rest, be rest assured that because God set his affections on the, on the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, therefore, they themselves were secure in their place in the covenant. And that's what, um, that's kind of a description of essentially covenantal nomism and the works of the law concept that I'm describing in my commentaries. Let's keep reading. Top of page 33. Owing to the fact that even if Paul's term works of the law referred to that different gospel with its badges that marked out existing covenant members as they walked in maintenance and repentance towards, uh, according to Torah because of the nationalistic Jewish policies being enforced in those days, these non-Jews seeking inclusion by these badges still at some time had to take on legal Jewish status if they were not quite sure if they were already born with it. And the, that's the point I'm trying to emphasize in my commentary, um, is that the Jewish people of Paul's day uh, kind of viewed their covenant status as um, 
describing two key aspects of responsibility when it came to God and his commandments. And I use a, um, a an analogy of a coin with two sides. And here's what I mean. Uh, from from the self-defined perspective present in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago. And, and some of this carries over to today, by the way, in today's Judaism. So, but essentially, here's the way I understand it. And this is, this is by going through the rabbinic writings and, and, and trying to, um, uh, uh, identify what I call the sub theme running throughout the, the rabbinic writings, as well as, uh, the, uh, the sub theme running throughout Paul's letters. Essentially, the Jewish people in Paul's day, um, viewed their covenant status as the coin with two sides. One side of the coin was their ethnicity as Jewish people that they gained either by birth or by conversion or by marrying into Jewishness, whatever. Either way, it was Jewish ethnicity. That was one side of the coin. And it was, it was the side of the coin that got you into the covenant. It was the side of the coin that you didn't really have to work, work very hard to do to get, especially if you were born a Jew. It was the side of the coin that was defined by them as pure grace. Because they were born with it. They were born with covenant status. And indeed, from a limited covenant perspective, that's actually accurate. They are born with that limited temporal covenant status. But that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin that helped to describe their position in the covenant was the side of the coin I call the maintenance of covenant membership. So, to get into the group, one was, one was either born a Jew or became a Jew through proselyte conversion. And the other side of the coin described their responsibility to the, to that covenant itself, to the, to the membership. In other words, the good standing member was required, expected to, uh, do his part as a standing member within the covenant. In other words, he couldn't just rest on his heels and sit back and relax and enjoy covenant membership with all its benefits, with all its protection, with all its blessings from God, etc., etc. No, there was actually some work that he had to do. And this is where the works of the law phrase gets used very prominently. The word works in Paul often is a uh, a buzzword and, and a... um. Uh, uh, like I said, a metonym or a, uh, um, um, gosh, there's another word I want to use, but it just escapes me. It's a longer word. When I think of it, I'll tell you, tell it to you. Uh, um, but works in Paul often describes from the Jewish perspective, it often describes faithfulness, faithfulness. It's not necessarily merit trying to work my way into the covenant. Remember the Jewish people of Paul's day, for the most part, believed that their position in the covenant was gained by their ethnicity. So they weren't trying to work their way into anything. Instead, the works that flowed from covenant membership were done in order to both maintain covenant membership and to demonstrate loyalty to the covenant. You see the big difference? So instead of keeping the Torah to become saved, like the Christian church supposes the Judaisms of Paul's day were teaching, instead, the Jewish people actually kept Torah because they already thought they were saved when they became Jews. See the big difference? It's a huge difference in my estimation. You don't keep Torah to become saved. You keep Torah because you're, you're, you thought you're saved when you're a Jew. Now stop and remind yourself as a 21st century Bible student. That theology is bad also, right? God doesn't recognize your Torah obedience as if it's going to keep you in the covenant and keep you in, in, in a covenant that you got into by your ethnicity. 
right? The theology is bad from start to finish. So either way, this coin that I'm describing from Paul's perspective, I'm sorry, from the, the, the his uh, detractors, from the, his proponents, his opponents' perspective, either way, the theology of that coin is bad, right? The first side of the coin that says you get into the covenant by ethnicity, that's bad theology according to Paul. And therefore, we're going to have to reject that theology as well. We recognize the historical reality of of their of their mindset, but we reject the theology. We know that that's bad theology. No one gets into the covenant. No one gets into the lasting people group of God by being a Jew. The the uh, covenants are not for Jews only. And by the same token, no one maintains their covenant status. Their ostensible covenant status in this case. No one maintains their position in God's covenant by. Um, keeping the Torah. Either one of those uh, perspectives is bad theology. And so, however, it gives us a better view of understanding the uh, theology that Paul is combating when we recognize that that is essentially the theology of the rabbis of Paul's day. And therefore, it basically forms the foundation of the rabbinic teachings and the rabbinic Judaism that you encounter in today's 21st century Judaisms. <clears throat> One of my students in the class is reminding me that in Galatians 2.19, it actually says that Paul was sent to the ethne, to the Gentiles, not the uncircumcised. Yeah, but uh, the and I would remind this student that the word ethne there is itself a, uh, a stand-in word for uncircumcised. In Paul's day, the uncircumcised were the Gentiles. The ethne, the nations, those of the nations were anyone who was not a Jew. Basically, in Paul's day, you had two people groups that existed, Jews and other so anyone who was not a Jew was part of the other, and any the label given to the other was both Gentile slash national slash ethnic slash Greek slash barbarian slash anything else. And so basically that's what Paul's trying to say is Paul was sent to the ethne, to the nations, and uh, not the uncircumcised. Yeah, you're right. The, the Greek word for un- uncircumcised is something like uh, acrobustia, uh, the un- unforeskinned ones. <laughs> something to, if we were trying to translate the acrobustia. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, but uh, uh, it it doesn't change any. It doesn't it doesn't change what I'm trying to say about the. Uh, um, the uh, uh, usage of the terms. We basically in Paul's day we had Jews and we had other. There were two people groups in view, Jews and other, and the other are anyone who's not a Jew. In other words, we could say it this way. In Paul's day, all recognized, all legally recognized Jews, according to the leaders of Paul's day, all legally recognized Jews were circumcised, period. Versus today, versus today, you can have, you can line up a hundred men, half of them could be circumcised, half of them may not be circumcised, physically circumcised, and yet... Um, that doesn't mean that 50% of them are Jews and 50% of them are not. But in Paul's day, circumcision was the primary way to identify a Jew, is the point. <clears throat> actually, yeah, my, the student reminds me that it actually enhances my point, so thank you. Yes, I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way. I'm actually agreeing with you. Um, uh, these two different words for uh, uncircumcised or those who are not Jewish. We could, we could fill it out that way. Uh, let's keep reading in my commentary. <clears throat> Um, so we're still near the top of page 33, uh, and we thought we just read that sentence about, uh, owing to the fact that even if Paul's term works of law, let's let, what I'm trying to say there is that let's suppose that I'm wrong about my view of works of law. Let's suppose that done is wrong. Let's suppose that works of law don't refer to the badges that identify Jewish identity. Let's suppose that works of law actually is the way that Luther and Calvin define it, which is basically merit theology, good works that anyone can do, Right. 
we still have to <clears throat> we still have to um, uh, agree that essentially by Paul's day that the Jewish people were still uh, forcing Gentiles to accept circumcision, even if it didn't, even if it didn't identify that person as a Jew. After they took on circumcision, they still were um, they still were being forced to accept circumcision. Let me just read the second uh, sentence, and you'll see where I'm going with that. We actually catch hints of this errant Jewish-only policy, as we recall verses like, quote, Or is God the God of the Jews only? That's from Romans 3.29. Why would Paul say that, or is God the God of the Jews only? Well, I believe he says that because that's that was one of the common ways of thinking in Paul's day. Again, Paul used to think this way. He used to think that God was the God of the Jews only, but now... He understands that God is the God of Jews and Gentiles. And in fact, that's what he says in the very next verse, if you were to read the whole passage in Romans 3.29. But we have another passage here that says, quote, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's Acts 15.1. What does Paul mean when, I'm sorry, what does the, uh, uh, what does this believing Pharisee mean when he says, unless you are circumcised? Well, I surmise that the word circumcised here is a, uh, a circumlocution. That's the fancy word I was looking for earlier. Circumlocution, uh, or a metonym, metonymy, for Jewish identity. So when the, the believing Pharisee said in Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you, not, you cannot be saved. Basically, I hear that Pharisee saying, unless you have legally recognized Jewish identity according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In a word, salvation is for Jews only. That was the prevailing Jewish worldview that Paul lived in and had to work from and had to actually combat. So that's why I say that from the top down, we could describe it this way. We, we have, from the top, we have, we have basically, we have God. We have his, these are not really in order, but uh, uh, somewhat in order. We have God. We have his covenants. We have his spirit. We have his people. We have his, his, his laws, the Torah. Basically, in Paul's day, the way I understand the theology um, that under that uh, the the uh, theology that supported uh, the uh, Paul's Judaisms, the Judaisms that Paul lived in, basically, as I understand it, their theology centered on a Jewish centric view, an ethnic Jewish centric view of all of those concepts. God was the God of the Jews only, and therefore. The covenant was for Jews only, and therefore the Holy Spirit was given to Jews only, and therefore covenant members were all Jewish, and therefore the Torah was for Jews only. From the from 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 God all the way down to the Torah, it was all a, an exclusively Jewish package. Now I say this as a Jew. I want you all to know, those of you listening to my commentary, those of you who are in class with me tonight, I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew, so I, I have nothing bad to say about my Jewish ethnicity. I'm proud to be a Jew, and I'm thankful that I was born a Jew. However, God didn't single me out as a Jew in order to demonstrate the reality that the covenant is for Jews only. That's not why I became a Jew, or that's not why I was born a Jew, and that's not why God allowed me to be born a Jew. But from the Jewish perspective of Paul's day, and I'm just going to keep repeating this until it's kind of ingrained in our skulls, ingrained in our brains, burned into our brains. That's the worldview that we have to kind of 
remember that Paul was writing from. Paul thought that this theology was bad. He used to believe it, and now he thinks it's bad. Now, w- let me interject here b- before I um, continue with my commentary. Um, let me re- actually read this paragraph, and then maybe I'll interject. My last paragraph, and I think this will be the last one that I read in the middle of page 33, and then we'll stop here for night, and we'll pick up pick up the uh, reading next week. <clears throat> With this background that I'm talking about, about the Jewish only, that, that God is the God of the Jews only, and that this is the way that the Jewish people of Paul's day fought, this is why I believe when Paul has the Gentiles wishing to join Israel in focus, when he's talking about Gentiles being included in the people of God, um, I think it's necessary to interpret Paul's phrase, works of the law, not merely as legalism, the way Luther and Calvin did, not merely as mechanical obedience to the law, the way your traditional Christian um, uh, commentaries do. I don't think that's a fair treatment of works of the law, because it leaves out an important ingredient. Rather, um, I think it's a technical term referring to a specific first century deficiency surrounding Torah observance and proselyte conversion for Gentiles. But it takes digging into the historical, cultural, and sociological context of covenantal nomism to see this technicality more clearly. Again, we're going to turn to covenantal nomism in section 5 below. Yes, I agree. Any approach to Hashem that circumvents the work of the cross is tantamount to legalism. I understand that, and I think that's what 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 many Christian commentators are trying to highlight when they talk about when they present works of law as mere mechanical obedience or mere merit theology. They're trying to highlight the fact that no one can work their way into heaven, no one can earn their salvation. Yes, I understand that theology. Yes, I understand that that perspective. And yes, I agree with it. So any approach to Hashem that circumvents the work of the cross is tantamount to legalism. However, first century Jewish Israel did not see themselves "Quote unquote," working their way towards grace, they they didn't consider their ethnicity as a work, and they didn't consider their Torah maintenance or Torah obedience as a work. They didn't consider it as a work. They they considered it as grace and faithfulness, or faith and faithfulness, if we use the Christian terms. Um, to be sure, they believed per election that God singled them out from among the nations as an act of pure grace, right? And this would not be an entirely inaccurate viewpoint. I have to keep stressing this fact as well. That God singled out Israel from among the nations to be the recipients of his covenants, to be the recipients of his Torah, to be the recipients of his spirit, to be the recipients of the Messiah. All of that is an act of election. God himself, by the grace of God, he elected to choose Israel. There's nothing Israel could have done to have earned that position in God's election. Agreed? Everyone agrees. Jews and Gentiles, Christians and non. They they all agree that Israel was basically, well, I shouldn't say they all agree because uh, traditional Judaism today believes that that Israel actually earned that position. But that's a different different commentary. Um, But basically, Christians, I agree with the Christian theology that Israel was elected by an act of grace. Right, So when, when Israel of, of Paul's day was saying, we're not trying to earn our way into the covenant. We believe we get got here because God elected us. Paul's going to have to agree with that, and I have to agree with it as well. And I hope that you, listening to my commentary, agree with it as well. Israel was elected by God, and it was an act of grace. However, however, let's talk about the misuse of that grace. In their eyes, in the eyes of the Judaisms of Paul's day, the Torah is not a burden. 
It's not a burden. I say that in contradistinction to the traditional Christian view of Torah today. Your average Christian pastor will tell you that the Torah is a yoke that no one can bear, uh, borrowing their theology from Peter's words in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, where Peter describes something that was a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear, and most Christian commentators will generously supply the explanation that the Torah is what uh, Peter is referring to in Acts 15 when he says that the, that it's a yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear. But I have to disagree with that that interpretation of of the Torah because it does not agree with either Paul's view of the Torah nor does it agree with the Torah's view of the Torah nor does it agree with any of the other uh, apostolic writers' view of the Torah. John tells us in 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 his book First uh, John. I think it's around chapter five, if I'm if I'm getting my reference correct, that um, the commandments of God are not burdensome, right? So if the Torah was a yoke, then why would John say that the commandments of God are not burdensome? Yeshua himself said that my uh, yoke is easy, my burden is light. Uh, Yeshua also said that I came not to do away with the law, but to uh, fulfill it. And he goes on to to explain what he means by fulfill. There, the Greek word plerao, the verb plerao, fulfill. Uh, plerosai is how it's parsed, but he goes on to explain what he means by plerao, by fulfilled, by explaining in the rest of the uh, surrounding verses in Matthew five seventeen through twenty that fulfill means to do the Torah, and therefore the doing cannot be burdensome. And then lastly, Paul in Romans chapter seven, I'm just pulling all these references out of my head as I'm recalling them. Paul in Romans seven says that the Torah is holy, righteous, and good, and that the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And therefore, he agrees with his inner man around the latter half of, of uh, Romans 7, around, say, verse 25 or something like that, that uh, with his mind, he agrees with the law of God. And then earlier in Romans, in Romans 3, around verse uh, 31, I think he says, do we make void the law through faith? No, we establish the law. So the point I'm trying to make is that the Jewish people of Paul's day, Paul included, would not have viewed the Torah as a burden. It was not a millstone hung around Israel's neck to sink them to the bottom of the ocean. It was not a burden to keep the Torah. In fact, in today's Jewish circles, today's 21st century Judaism, the modern Jewish views of today, they also don't consider the Torah to be a, a burden. So, that's the perspective I would challenge my Christian friends and family members with. The Torah is not a burden. It was not a burden in Paul's day. It was not a burden to Paul. They didn't view it that way. In fact, as I finish my commentary, it is a gift of grace from a loving father. So, what I'm trying to say, along with Sanders, Dunn, Wright, Haig, Nanots, etc., is that I believe it is not entirely accurate to identify first century Israel's, quote, works of the law, end quote, through the lens of 21st century, quote, merit theology, end quote. And with that, I think I'll stop there in my commentary, and next week we'll pick up our reading uh, starting at the bottom of page uh, 33 here with for purposes of comparison. What we're going to do here in my commentary is I'm going to single out, I think, about five different commentaries, and we're going to examine works of the law from five different perspectives. Some of them are, are diametrically opposed to one another, such as, for instance, Matthew Henry's commentary and Luther's commentary, as opposed to, say, um, maybe Tim Haig's commentary. Uh, we're going to single out, I'm going to bring in some, I'm, basically I'm going to bring in some Christian authors and some Messianic Jewish authors, and we're going to see if we can maybe allow their commentaries to give us uh uh, some perspective to this phrase works of law to see if we can help ourselves better understand it.
But with that, let me say this um, much about uh, where I'm going in my commentary. Um, here's what I think is at stake. Uh, g- coming full circle and talking about the two social groups that I described uh, at the beginning of this teaching tonight, where I talked about the standard Christian co- uh, community on my left and the standard uh, Torah community slash Messianic community on my right, and how that essentially the prevailing Christian uh, communities of today prevailing. This is not across the board, but for the most part, the the popular view uh uh, championed in Christian communities today is this. This is their basically their interpretation of Galatians and their application. So let's look at it from two perspectives. We're going to take the Christian community's view of their interpretation and application, and then we'll turn towards the Messianic community's uh, interpretation and application of Galatians, the same letter. So basically, if I'm understanding the Christian commentaries that are read correctly, and if I understand the messages that I hear when I visit Christian churches accurately, if I'm understanding what they're teaching me as a Messianic Jew, essentially they teach that from an interpretive perspective, the law is done away with in Paul, the law is done away with in Christ, the law has been fulfilled in Christ, and therefore works of the law are works done in order to try and save oneself by keeping the Torah, and that is the interpretation. Therefore, the application, that is to say the solution to the bad theology, the solution to the problem is that one needs to cast his faith on Jesus and turn away from Torah, abandon the effort of trying to keep the law for salvific purposes, for meritorious purposes, and fall entirely on the mercy and the grace of Yeshua, cast your faith on Yeshua, leave Jewishness behind, leave Torah behind, and walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, walk by the law of Christ. I'm using broad generalities, so please don't get upset over the uh, the the um the uh, uh um the kind of the stereotype that I'm creating I'm I'm trying to just generally uh, describe what I have uh uh encountered as the uh, prevailing Christian view. So if you think I'm seriously in error there then shoot me an email yeshua613 at hotmail.com and tell me where I'm missing it. But I think that's that's essentially how the Christian church describes the interpretation of Paul and the application of Paul. The interpretation of Galatians and the application of Galatians. The interpretation of works of law and the application of works of law. Essentially, um, again, work uh, law is out, Christ is in, Torah is out, law of God is in, law of Christ is in. Um, uh, don't walk by the law, walk by the Spirit. They, they see this dichotomy between the law and grace. Basically, it's law versus grace within the Christian uh, theology. And and I'm not disparaging Christian theology. I don't I don't reject all everything Christian in, in, in a limited perspective. I'm, I'm a Christian as well. I'm simply saying that their perspective on Torah differs from mine. So now, having have with that description on our left, let's turn to the right for a split second. On the right side, we've got the Messianic communities of today. And this is the perspective that you can gain if you either step into a Messianic congregation, visit a Messianic congregation, um, go online and read Messianic commentaries, uh, things like that. This is their perspective. Essentially, when it comes to interpreting interpretation of Galatians, they feel that works of the law is the description of something different than just basic merit theology. Some Messianic commentators believe it's a description of a legalistic perversion of 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 the Torah, something to that effect. Um, give me a moment. Okay. Uh, some some Messianic teachers believe and, and commentators believe that 
uh, works of the law in Paul and and the view of law and Torah in Paul is essentially a legalistic perspective where they were trying to earn their way. So it's similar in scope to the way the Christians describe Torah, that is to say a legalistic outlook, a legalistic perversion where they're trying to keep Torah to become saved. But the application is quite the opposite of what the Christians teach. Uh, the Messianic communities often don't see Paul breaking from Judaism and breaking from Torah obedience. Instead, they see Paul continuing as a Jew, as a religious Jew, and continuing to admonish both Jews and Gentiles to keep Torah. So we have two diametrically opposed, as I see it, uh, applications when it comes to Paul, and yet both groups are reading the same scriptures. Isn't that interesting? So we have Christians on the left side saying the Torah is done away with; you don't have to keep it, and we have gent. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Gentiles. We have um, uh, Messianic Jews and Gentiles on the right here saying no, the Torah is relevant; the Torah should be kept; we should be keeping Torah. Things like that. Um, and that's, I think, was what at stake when we come when it comes to us studying Galatians. We, we basically have two views that we have to contend with. I'm not going to tell you which view you need to choose. That's between you and God and the Holy Spirit. But I am going to try and campaign for the view that I think is more accurate. Uh, in other words, I think that I think that the Messianic view is a, is a bit more accurate than the Christian view. Although, again, when the Christians say that. If you think you're keeping Torah is going to save you, I agree with the theology that says, no, that's wrong. You shouldn't be trying to keep Torah to save you. In other words, legalistic perversion of Torah is wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's bad. It's bad theology, and I'm going to reject it every time. Bad theology, meaning uh, the person who thinks that works will save them, is sadly mistaken. And so I'm going to agree with any Christian pastor who is going to teach from his pulpit that works do not save. That would include Luther, that would include Calvin, obviously. So I'm going to agree with that theology, but I'm going to disagree when the pastor comes to practical application and says, therefore, because we, because we know that keeping the law can't save you, therefore the only solution is to run away from the law. No, I'm going to disagree with that theology and that application. Why? And I'll close with this. Here's why I disagree. Not just because I'm a Jew, but because I think the Bible disagrees. Moses enjoins Israel to keep the law over and over again. I don't. Even, I, there's so many passages I I can't even begin to name them by reference sake. Just read. Just just let your Bible plop open anywhere in the book of say Deuteronomy, and you'll see where that Moses is enjoining Israel to to accept covenant responsibility when it comes to Torah main, uh, Torah keeping. Keep the Torah not to maintain your position as a covenant member, but keep the Torah because it is what God enjoins upon you as his children. Keep the Torah because God's asking you to do it. God's commanding you to do it. They are they are your covenant responsibility, the, the commandments of the Torah. The uh, the laws that are laid out by the Torah are, are the uh, responsibility of covenant members. It's an expression of of uh, covenant loyalty. Uh, so we have all of Moses agreeing with that. And then if you get through get to the say the writings, I'm I'm kind of describing the Tanakh, the uh, the uh, Nevi'im part. I'm sorry, the Ketuvim, the writings, the Law, the Prophets. And I suppose I should have said the Prophets first, right? The Law, the Prophets, and the writings. Uh, the uh, nevertheless, the writings uh, also have uh, nothing negative, but everything positive to say about the Torah. Read, say, Psalm 19. Read, say, Psalm 119. And you'll see that the writer to the book of Psalms there had everything positive to say about God's laws and God's ways. And then when we skip forward to the prophets, and I'm closing with this, 
When we skip forward to the prophets, for instance, say Jeremiah around 31, Ezekiel around, say, chapter 36, I believe it is, um, or maybe it's 24. Uh, nevertheless, Jeremiah and Ezekiel do not warn Israel away from keeping the law. What they do warn Israel away from is penchant lust for idolatry. But what they do, in fact, promise is that one day, God, by his Holy Spirit, will establish a new covenant, and God will circumcise their hearts, and God will cause them to walk into his ways. So from a prophet's perspective, the Torah is not something that is uprooted in the, by the work of the Spirit. It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite, and I can't understand how Christian theology can stress their point when the prophets teach quite the opposite. God instructing Israel through the prophets that one day God will send his spirit, and he will pour out his spirit, and he will circumcise the hearts of wayward Israel, and he will cause them to be um, brought back into right standing with God. He will forgive them, wash them clean. Of course, we know that this is messianic language, and we know that this is only done through the work of Messiah. We know this through hindsight. But the point I'm trying to emphasize is that through the prophets, God promises that the work, what, among other things, one of the works of the Spirit will be increased covenant loyalty obedience to the commandments. So I don't, I, I really shake my head. I can't understand where Christian theology comes along and says that, that it, via Paul, supposedly via the book of Galatians, where Christian theology comes along and somehow teaches that through Messiah, the law is done away with. Through Messiah, we no longer have to keep the law. When, when, I, I tell you what, I, I say this as a Jew, with all, with all respect for my Christian pastors, when my fellow unbelieving uh, traditional Jews, uh, religious Jews, Orthodox Jews, whatever you want to call them, when my fellow Jewish uh, countrymen hear the message from the Christian pastors that teaches that believe in Jesus so that the law is done away with, believe in Jesus and you don't have to worry about the law, those religious Jews shake their head and say, you know, if I have to choose between Jesus and the law, I think I'll keep the law. I think I'll keep the law. And and in my opinion, that's just a, a poorly delivered gospel presentation because we don't have to tell unbelieving Jews that they need to get rid of the law in order to believe in Jesus. What we should be telling them is what Paul taught them in Romans 3.31. Like I said, do we, do we, have, do we nullify this faith? Do we um, uh, uproot this faith? Uh, do we uproot the law by faith? Do we nullify the law by faith? God forbid we establish the law. We shouldn't be telling Jewish people that the law is done away with in Christ. We should be telling them that in Messiah they can now have the Spirit of God within them, and their hearts can become circumcised. Therefore, they can become actually more zealous for the law, more fervent for Torah obedience, so that we can continue to do what God is asking of us. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, I think I'll stop there. Um, bring the commentary to a close. I'm just checking real quick. A reference. Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. All right, um, let me close in prayer for those of you who are listening to my commentary by, by way of uh, iPod, by, by a podcast or whatnot. Um, let me close the commentary and thank you for joining me and uh, invite you to join me every week, if you can, live uh, each Tuesday night, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Go to my website at tatesaytorah.com and click on the Galatians commentary link at the top of the page. 
and then scroll down the page and there will be information concerning the live internet study and what you will need if you'd like to join the study each week. But for those of you who are with me in the class now, stay with me after the um, the uh, uh, closing and I'll entertain questions and comments, okay? Let's pray. Abba, I bless your name and I thank you for the opportunity to sit before the students once again, not necessarily as one who feels that he has all the answers, but Father, one who like them is just a student. I want to be a noble Berean. I want to see if the things that are being taught are actually accurate. When I hear what's being taught in pulpits and churches and synagogues, I want to check it with the words of God. I want to check it with the scriptures and see if that's accurate. Lord, I want to be a... a um. A, uh, a student of the word. I want to, as Ezra would say, I want to study in order to do and then teach. And so I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to sit and teach. I thank you for each and every student who has attended tonight. I pray that you'll continue to bless them in their endeavor to be a more mature child of God. I pray that you will uh, raise them up as a witness in, among their family, among their friends, among their co-workers. I pray that you'll give them a supernatural ability to recall the words of Scripture to their mind as they seek to present the gospel to unsaved people that they meet. Lord, I pray that you'll give them um, doors of opportunity to be able to share their witness with everyone. Lord, we know that, that one of the primary reasons that we press into the words are so that we can be a light to those around us. And Lord, help us to be not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and also to the Greek, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And so we thank you, Father, for this gospel, for this good news. And we thank you for the power of the Messiah who has caused us to be ambassadors for you, Father, for the King, for you indeed are our Father, both Jew and Gentile. Thank you that you're drawing us together as a community of called out ones, as an ecclesia, as a kehila. Thank you that you have given us your precious words to safeguard and to to continue to walk out. Thank you, Lord, that your Torah is forever settled in heaven. We thank you that we know that your words will go forth. And the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. Out of Jerusalem, the word of the Lord will go forth. Uh, Torah will go forth from Jerusalem and the word of the Lord is from, uh, from Jerusalem, from Zion. Thank you, Lord, that these are your promises and that they are true. And so we bless you, Father. We ask that you'll bring us uh, through this week, this week of Pesach, as we're now uh, counting the Omer towards uh, Shavuot, towards Pentecost, towards the uh, remembrance of of the uh, Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, and the um, the remembrance of the uh, Matan Ruach, the giving of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Father, let us look with expectancy as we count the Omer towards Pentecost, towards Shavuot. Thank you, Father, for Pesach and for delivering us. Thank you that it teaches us that we have been set free in Messiah, that we're freed by Jesus and we are being filled by Jesus as we look towards Pentecost. Be with us this week and heal us and we will be healed. And we'll be careful to give you the praise. B'shem Yeshua, M'shachinu, V'emru. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, 
to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>